BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have a kind of an interesting episode today, uh, interesting on a few different levels. Uh, we are going to talk about, you know, I just I just did a post on Trump had this rally in Arizona on Saturday, and there's, you know, there's that kind of like elite journalism thing of people aren't supposed to amplify Trump and, you know, kind of foreground what he's saying too much for all these reasons that don't, at least to me, make a lot of sense. Uh, So anyway, this morning I noticed this write-up in Roll Call where it turns out that in addition to sort of, you know, kind of going right past 11 up to 12 on the sort of the racist incitement stuff about whites being replaced and only only non-whites are going to get the COVID medication and all this kind of stuff, he's now explicitly telling his supporters, you got to cheat in the next election. You got to, Democrats do it, so you have to cheat uh, just to even the score and make it fair. And I think we've always known that all these charges about, you know, false charges about cheating and, you know, fake election, this and that and the other, is really about a permissioning structure to say it's okay for you to cheat because they cheated. Or it's okay for you to prevent them from voting because they cheated, all that kind of stuff. But he's getting more and more explicit on that. And I think everybody should know that. I think everybody should know that. And I think that Republicans should be asked about it at every turn. So that is happening. And let me, I'm going to uh, remind you about Grady's cold brew iced coffee before I get to the some other news. So you got hooked on $6 iced oat lattes and $5 nitro cold brews. It happens to the best of us, but a few months and a few hundred bucks later, you're ready to become your own barista. Making cold brew at home isn't rocket science, but it is messy, not to mention the need for grinders and strainers and unitask or brewer containers. If you want to make cold brew at home the easy way, order a Grady's cold brew kit. It's it's a simple and space efficient way to make a week's worth of coffee without the mess. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's at uh, Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So the other the other news uh, this week is that Kate has COVID. Hi, Kate. Hi. <laughs> so so thankfully, Kate is is has a you know generally mild case, but we're going to do an abbreviated episode uh, so Kate can conserve her energy because she's all also uh, in different you know in addition to this job as co-host of of our podcast, also is 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 one of our lead reporters. So we're gonna we're gonna keep it relatively brief. So Kate, what's the story? You have COVID. You've arrived. I, I do. I do. Um, 
Yeah, so I had some symptoms of COVID, but also turns out that every kind of typical wintertime illness basically shares COVID symptoms. So, you know, I had a cough and a, a headache and some muscle aches and everything. Uh, so I, I took a test and I was so surprised that I was positive. I don't, I don't even know why, because it's not, I haven't been living, you know, in a, in a totally hermetically sealed bubble because I'm, uh, you know, vaccinated, I'm, I'm boosted, I'm young and healthy. I live with my boyfriend who's young and healthy. So, you know, and not that we've been going to raves or anything, but I, I went to the Hill last week and, and things like that. But I think what was surprising to me is that I thought if I were to get the kind of big bad disease that's in all of the headlines, I would know for some reason. I would, it would feel like nothing I've ever felt before. And, you know, maybe that is just kudos to the vaccines for being as good as they are, that it feels a lot like wintertime illnesses I've had before where I've just got a bit of a hacking cough and, you know, you, you kind of feel run down. Um, so it, it really hasn't been bad. I've, I haven't been, you know, bed bound at any point. I, um, I would say the weirdest thing, and I was just telling Josh before we went on the air, is a few days into being sick, I got the the loss of smell and taste part of COVID. And you know what? That sucks. It really sucks. It turns out eating is totally unenjoyable when you can't taste it. And I've, I've never been one of those people who's like, oh, I forgot to eat today. I take a lot of joy out of meals. But I keep getting to this point where I'm, I'm suddenly feeling really bad. And I'm like, oh, what's going on? And it's like, oh, well, I haven't eaten in 12 hours because I have no appetite. It's just gone. So that's the weirdest thing. And I'm hoping that those senses come back very quickly and I promise to never take them for granted again. It, it is, it, you know, our sense of taste, we, we, it's so, it's so second nature. It's so basic to kind of being a human that, you know, we kind of lose a sense of how, what a primary life experience that is. Just not like, oh, the best, you know, croissant I ever had <laughs> and it was bliss, but just like, oh, this tastes like this, this tastes like that, right? It's just a kind of, and same with sense of, sense of smell. It's funny that, you know, a, you mentioned the, I'm not sure, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm not sure a sense of shock, but a sense of like, what, wait, I have COVID, you know, mm -hmm. surprise or shocked when you got the test result. And, and I know a mutual friend of ours, uh, when this person got COVID, at least as this person described it uh, uh, to me, that at least at the beginning, the sort of the biggest thing was not the symptoms, but just that of of the shock value of testing positive. You know, just just being shocked at 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 some basic level. And and when I thought about it, and I had um, vicariously sort of an experience like this when my son tested positive uh, a few weeks ago, and he's he's totally fine. Uh, was you know, I think we've all been living for a couple years now with a primary thing. I'm trying not to get COVID. I'm wearing a mask. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And obviously, there are certain people who are, are you know, kind of living in mortal fear of COVID and some, you know, some people for good reason because they have very high risks. Other people who are totally blasé and, and you know, kind of strutting, I'm not wearing a mask and all this kind of stuff. 
but still, it's been such an ever present. It, it's even if you are really casual and not worrying and all that kind of stuff, it's still been such an ever present thing for two years that when you get a positive test, even if you're not worried in any big sense, it's just a jolt. Mm-hmm. It's just a jolt. It is. And it sounds like you had some, yeah. some of that too. There's also just been so much, I think largely thanks to Trump, but so much kind of like virtue attached to how you act during the pandemic for, for kind of both tribes, you know, for, for the liberal wing of things, that means, you know, caution and, and masks. And, you know, I've definitely been behaving much more on on that end of the spectrum. And then for the kind of right wing, it's, the opposite of that, right? It's like the the conscientious throwing off of responsibility kind of thing. So there was this weird moment where I felt guilty when I got my positive diagnosis. Like, you know, I had this initial rush of, oh, that, that careless, that's careless of me, you know? And then I had to kind of sit myself down and be like, okay, you know, I, I've very conscientiously worn a mask. You know, I am aware that what is a, a low risk to me is a heightened risk of, to others. And I've tried to act in ways that, you know, kind of, you know, that show that. But it's funny that that is definitely a, you know, a layer to this in a way that has not been, you know, that in years past, if you got the flu in the winter, you probably wouldn't have this feeling of like, God, that was dumb of me. Like you know? reevaluating your life decisions, kind <laughs> exactly. Of thing. Yeah. Right, right, right. You know, it's it when when my uh, uh, son tested positive, and and kind of in rapid succession, both of my both my sons had it, and they're both fine. When my older son, who got it first, got his positive test, I had a kind of a different sense of guilt. Like I kind of my son's healthy; he's obviously quite young, right? He's a teenager. So I didn't have any big concerns about his health, right? But I, it kind of jarred me. And I, I had this experience of failure. And I thought about it because I'm like, wait a second. It's, it's, it's fine. It's going to be fine. There's nothing like, you know, it's totally fine. Nothing to worry about. But I think what it was is that for me, I have had kind of a mission for two years now to keep the people in my family from getting COVID. And I've done all sorts of things to maybe not prevent it forever, put it off as long as absolutely possible, figuring that the longer you 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 can put it off, the better the medical you know protections are going to be. And so I had, again, vicariously a bit of that sense of sort of like I'd been holding a kind of a weight for two years right? Or, or or built up this thing of I need to keep people in my family from getting COVID. Uh, and so when when he did, I was kind of like, I, I had this very kind of uncanny feeling of failure. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a weird feeling. It, and as you say, it's not like you do what you can. It's an infectious mm-hmm. disease, right? I mean, it's kind of... And it's funny because I think as valid as that emotion is, it is also a bit at odds with where we are in the pandemic you know, considering the, all the kind of safety mechanisms we have at this point, which is that, you know, we kind of as a people are the safest we've, we've been from the virus since the beginning. But this 
you know, the battle on the turf of kind of virtue and civic responsibility and how we're supposed to act as a society is so kind of scorched earth that I think some of those feelings, you know, have dribbled down even into now, like they, like we would have probably felt if we got COVID, you know, way at the beginning, kind of before there was any protection in place and and things were a lot more dangerous for, for everybody. Well, and, that, and that's why it, it was I. It seemed like such an uncanny experience because I was having both experiences at once. You know, kids are fully vaccinated; they're healthy. So at the same time, I was like, "Hey, this is okay." Tons of kids are getting it. Um, yes, there are some rare examples of some bad outcomes, but those are almost always unvaccinated or you know underlying health condition. So I knew that. So I was like, "This is fine. It's really okay." And and yet. I had I had clearly built up over two years some level of my identity was I need to keep my family from getting this illness as long as possible. So there was this kind of weird, uncanny, both things at one time. One, it's totally fine. And another kind of like, I failed. I failed. Yeah. And it was just, it was just kind of weird. I get that. I think it's also, I would not be surprised if these kind of different flavors of this experience that we're describing become much more common because, I mean, this variant, it really does just spread like wildfire. I feel like I, for the longest time, only knew people who had COVID by, you know, degrees, people who yep. were some who were separated yep. from me. And now it's just, it feels like everyone I know, every other day I'm getting a text of like, ugh, finally got me, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, to absolutely. And I'm sure that's sort of, you know, a, a common experience around the country now. Certainly, you know, two or three weeks ago now in New York City, that was the thing where kind of, you know, kind of like you describe, we've all known someone who's had COVID over the last couple of years. But in my case, like, not a ton of people, some, not a ton. And then suddenly, in a period of like 10 days, <laughs> yeah, like everybody, Everybody gets it at once. And that's kind of, you know, it's, 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 it is, you know, for all of the tests and studies that they will end up doing, you can just see it with your own eyes. It is way more contagious. I mm -hmm. mean, just because, you know, just it seems like everybody it, where it's almost like a kind of, uh, I talk to people now and I'm like, well, you've had COVID, right? You know, just it, it's so it's 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 so ubiquitous. And, 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 you know, there is that I used to think before this all happened, I had this kind of sense, well, viruses tend to to become more mild over time, um, not because they're nice, but because it's an evolutionary advantage. And that's actually not true. That, that, that is, that is a, a, a fake bit of wisdom. It's true at an extreme margin. Like the virus to to any virus to perpetuate itself, it can't kill you on first contact because then you can't spread it, right? But if you sicken and die over four or five weeks, it's good to go. It can still it can st spread to enough people. So this idea that they have to get more mild is not really the case. So we are we are just blessed. I mean, can you imagine if if the original version of COVID was this? contagious. Yeah. That's a very different story because clearly even with masks, most people are, you know, are not, you know, you can take a lot of precautions and still, and, and still get this. So, so thankfully it does seem to be intrinsically more mild, but also most people are vaccinated now. 
or they've already had COVID. So it's also that, that, you know, that this is, this is the evolutionary arc of most infectious diseases that you have the human population becomes experienced with the disease, i.e., you have, de- you know, development of, of a population-wide immunity, either through vaccination or, or, through, or through getting sick. So, yeah, but it's, 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 it's still a big jolt. And, and I'm, you know, we're all happy that you're, you know, basically in good shape. Um, mm. And I'm sure you'll be smelling and tasting before uh, long. So I can't that's, wait. I'm right? like no, it's, crafting it's, this nutty list in my head of things that I can't freaking wait to taste. And let me tell you, it is not a lot of highbrow cuisine that's making this list. I'm going <laughs> to get like Doritos a cream so donut fast. Or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what, what was it? What was Doritos. the thing? Doritos. I don't know oh, why. Doritos. I've never had a big passion for Doritos in my life. And all of a sudden, they're all I can think this of. This is a total insight into your character, Kate. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. All right. So um, let's, let's uh, transition to the Senate from COVID mm. to Senate, um, so we can we can kind of get this episode uh, uh, wrapped, not too much longer. Yeah, as we know, the the Democratic leadership they are pushing ahead to kind of force votes on a reform of the filibuster and this uh, voting rights legislation. Uh, even though it seems almost certain that neither are going to pass, and you've been kind of giving us the the, the moment by moment uh, uh, coverage of this, uh, despite having you know no sense of smell or taste. <laughs> so, what's the story? What is where is that now? Where are we on that? So today we're recording this Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday evening. We're expected to get to you know what they call the cloture vote on the voting bills, the the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Act, and. That is the point at which Republicans will be able to filibuster. Democratic leadership basically used um, kind of a, a procedural strategy to get these voting bills into another shell bill that can come over from the House as what they call a message, which basically just means Republicans can't filibuster it right away. So there's actual time to debate it and make floor speeches. And then we get to the inevitable filibuster before those things would have reached final passage. Now, is what you're talking about there the issue of you can basically filibuster to prevent the debate from even starting, and then right. you can later filibuster to prevent the debate from ending, i.e. ending so you can vote. And so this this legislative procedure allows the majority to avoid the first opportunity, but there's still the second opportunity. That's and that's exactly kind of what right. they've done here. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So we're coming up against that second hurdle where Republicans will filibuster and these bills will fail. And that's the point at which either late tonight or maybe they'll boot it till tomorrow, we expect Schumer to bring up a rules change for a vote, a filibuster reform. What they've settled on as of now is basically a a kind of hybrid talking filibuster and carve out. So there'll be the talking filibuster part first, but then eventually kind of after the the floor holding and all all the speech making, then the threshold is lowered from 60 votes to a simple majority. So kind of a hybrid of these two ideas. That The vote on that rules change, whether that come tonight or tomorrow, is then we expect to fail with Manchin and Cinema at least joining the Republicans in opposing that rules change. So we're in this weird kind of spot where failure is largely preordained um, because, you know, Manchin and Cinema, as we've seen this week and last week, have reiterated their refusal 
to particularly allow the threshold to come down from 60. You know, Manchin will profess that he loves the talking filibuster, but only if the talking filibuster ends in that supermajority requirement again, which doesn't really do a whole lot to further Democratic goals here. Um, So we're kind of barreling towards that. There have been a lot of questions floating around like, why are Democrats doing this? It kind of why highlight an intra-party division rather than really kind of railing on Republicans? Why hold a vote that's doomed to fail? And, you know, when I was on the Hill last week, a lot of members feel very strongly that I think you need to put kind of a punctuation mark on this. Like you need to kind of end the conversation, get people on the record, force Manchin and Cinema to vote publicly against these rules changes. And I think that serves two purposes, both not just letting Manchin and Cinema kind of like squishy talk their way out of this stuff, you know, because they they say things that to an untrained ear would sound reasonable, right? You know, oh, I, I'm all for voting rights legislation, except they're really not because they won't, uh, you know, reform the rule that would let those things pass. So there's that there's that piece of it, and then I also just think there's a piece of like they've got to put a period on this so they can move on to something yeah. else. And that's what this vote would do. And we are seeing some, you know, some ramifications, I think, for these senators having to be on the record. Last night, we got statements from Emily's List and NARAL kind of clearly aimed at cinema saying it's now a red line for us that if you don't support rules changes to pass democracy reform, you will not get our endorsement in the future. And she responded to it. So, I mean, it clearly. And what, kind of, and what did she say? She basically used a version of her argument that the supermajority threshold prevents wild swings in legislation, including in the realm of women's rights and women's health, which is actually, you know, for a long time, abortion rights groups have been kind of resistant to filibuster reform because the fear there is, you know, if Republicans are gifted a simple majority, the first thing they're going to do is try to outlaw abortion. Mm -hmm. But that really Mm -hmm. has changed in this term. I think part of it, you know, the aggression from this court, it's pretty clear to all supporters of abortion rights that those rights are very endangered, whether that be through a Republican controlled Congress or the Supreme Court. So it doesn't matter as much. Um, Right. And also, you know, kind of the the way they premise these statements was, you know, you can't have women's rights without democracy rights, without a functioning democracy, you're not going to have that anyway. So, you know, they've kind of uh, switched their positioning on that. Well, I think it's I think it's also a a misread of the legislative politics that if Republicans in the majority want to outlaw abortion, they'll just get rid of the filibuster. Right. I mean, and and I think this is what has driven the change, is that y- you can't have seen what happened with Merrick Garland and then with just now Justice Barrett, kind of like when a seat is on the line, man, you just crawl over glass to get it done. Nothing stands in the way, and I think everybody gets that now. I think the other point is that I don't think, you know, what we've seen from the court is I don't, you know, the court will do it for them, but. I don't think Republicans don't want to do this at the national level because I think there would be serious blowback. They they vastly prefer doing it indirectly through the court in a way that does never quite has their fingerprints on it. So, you know, what it all comes down to is that, you know, holding on to the filibuster in a case like this, it just has no effect one way or another on on abortion rights. It's just irrelevant to it. And and so how important you think 
abortion rights or reproductive rights generally are is kind of irrelevant to the calculus because it just has nothing to do with it. And clearly, as you say, that that has kind of everyone has made that has made that same deduction from the facts of the last few years. I think on that argument in particular, there's just kind of like two relevant things. One of which, as you say, is if Mitch McConnell sees a future advantage, should Republicans retake the Senate in getting rid of the filibuster completely or making more carve outs, he's going to do it. And that's not just speculation. He did it in 2017 when he wanted to get Supreme Court justices um, passed with a simple majority. So, I mean, we know that that's true. So kind of the whole argument of like, well, if we do it, Republicans are going to make us pay. I mean, what are you talking about? When has Mitch McConnell ever been like, you know what? Democrats showed restraint. So we owe that in response. (laughs) Like, yeah, real. And then the other piece of it is, Republicans just have a more vested interest in maintaining a filibuster on basically all legislation than Democrats do. And they keep, especially during this kind of marathon of floor speeches we're seeing that that are happening before these votes happen, Republicans are saying, you know, we came under pressure from Trump. You know, he wanted us to get rid of the filibuster. We stood firm. You know, we refused. And that's not because of any kind of moral high ground. That's because they knew that the stuff they wanted to get passed, which was namely tax cuts and judicial nominations, you can do with the filibuster in place. So it just yeah, they've hurts already been Democrats carved out. more. Yeah, exactly. they've already been carved out. And, and, and that is absolutely the case. What Republicans want are only things that have already had the carve outs. But the other point goes to the the abortion rights issue, that the things that they hypothetically would want to get rid of the filibuster for are generally things that 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 elected Republicans don't actually want to do. Mm-hmm. Some of their supporters may want to do it, but they don't want to do it because, you know, God forbid, uh, in, you know, 2023, I mean, it's it's really notional until uh, in, until 2025, since obviously the, Joe Biden would 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 veto anything that comes out of a Republican Congress in the, in, the, in the you know two years after 2022. But if if there's a you know national abortion ban uh, passed through Congress in 2025, that would put a lot of uh, you know Senate Republicans under uh, under pressure. Right. So they don't want to do it. So it really is, as you know, from every different direction, Republicans already have everything they want. They don't need to get rid of the filibuster. Um, So it's all kind of, it's all sort of notional. In any case, we went on this sort of sidetrack from when you were saying that, you know, the rationale that Democrats have for wanting to kind of play this out to the end, getting everybody to vote, and that it is having some repercussions for these two, maybe more cinema than mansion. Let's pick up from there. So so they're yeah. getting some blowback and that where do we go? Where does it, you know, kind of play it out for us? I mean, and the other piece of that is just there is a shift in how other Democrats are talking about them. You know, for like a whole year, it's been very treatment with kid gloves. I think with the understanding that you don't you can't do anything without these two people no matter how pissed you may be at them. We are now kind of turning a corner a little bit. I think because of, you know, the at least what now looks like the death of build back better coupled with the death of these voting laws. You know, yesterday you had kind of Bernie Sanders saying he'd be open to primary challenges to the two, which isn't like, you know, shocking. It's, it's Bernie. But then Schumer was posed but to say it, but saying right. it out loud is is go somewhere. Yeah. 
And then Schumer's asked the same question and he kind of dithers. He, he won't answer it, which is kind of notable in and of itself. That I think we're reaching the point where people realize, you know, you can be as polite as you want to Manchin and cinema. It doesn't matter. You know, they've yeah. kind of showed yeah. that they are not going to come into the fold at this point. So, um, you know, that's also something that's kind of circulating now. And of course, that's a, a bigger threat for cinema than it is for Manchin, just given their political realities. But so, you know, we're kind of coming up on the end of this push, this, you know, punctuated by passionate speeches, but but not much else. And so when all this fails, I think the big question is, Okay, so what does the Senate do now? You know, my guess is, you know, it's going to be a return to build back better. They're going to try to see if Manchin would pass anything, which I think in some ways might just look like a, a baby version of what we've been doing this whole time, um, because he just has shown us again and again that he will be as kind of vaguely optimistic, you know, I'm talking to everyone, I'm negotiating as long as he can before someone's like, okay, you've, you're giving us absolutely nothing. Right. But I right, mean, right. what else do you do at this point? Right. I mean, they've, they've kind of got to go back to that. And I assume in between they'll shove through kind of as many nominees as possible, which has kind of been one of the most successful hallmarks of Biden's presidency so far. But, you know, I don't, other than that, the path forward legislating wise is not super clear to me at this juncture. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And, 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 you know, I saw something about, Oh, we're, well, we'll break up, you know, build back better into a bunch of constituent bills, but it, it's not like they didn't think of that in the first place. The whole right. point is you can only, it's only the reconciliation sort of omnibus model that allows you to, to, to do it possibly with 50 votes. So I, you know, you could make them into, into messaging vehicles, to to just force Republicans to you know to filibuster, but I mean, that's no sweat off their back. They've shown pretty clearly they're happy to fill you know, especially because you don't have to do anything. You just say no, we're not gonna we're not gonna right. we're not gonna provide any votes. And that's you know, as we have said many times on this on this podcast, that is what is really so corrosive about the filibuster is that you don't have to do anything. You don't have to, you know, go to the floor or do a bunch of, you know, antics. You just kind of send a note to the majority leader saying, you know, go, go, go get your 60 votes. Good luck. And it's done. So you don't really have to do anything. Right. Um, and I, yeah, I don't really know. I, I don't, I don't really know either. And I think, I mean, you know, I, I wrote a post about this last week. This is why you hold a vote. This is why you hold a vote. Everybody needs to kind of sign their name and, and say, this is where I came down. And then it's just there. And as you say, Democrats need it just to kind of move on. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause you say, look, we did it. It's done. It's done. And because without that, you do continually allow the cinemas and the mansions to have this thing. Well, oh, I wasn't against it. I was, I was negotiating in good faith, and and we were almost there. And and you know, when the time was all, you know, talk, 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 talk. So there's never any. There's never, you know, one of the reasons there's never any accountability is because it it's sort of like a Zeno's paradox. You never actually get there. So there's no there's no decision that you can be accountable for. It's just you know kind of you know the 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 back channel non discussion discussions and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, so that's right. that is. So when is it? When when are we done with this? When is this? What's what's the kind of the play out over the next few days? When are they going to have all the votes and this is done done done? 
I mean, they could do everything tonight. I think it'll it might stretch into tomorrow um, and then they'll probably kind of break for the weekend and the recess that was supposed to be scheduled for this week has been pushed to next. So there'll be a bit of a, a break before they kind of uh, come back and, and regroup and figure out what's next. I mean, there are also some housekeeping stuff on the table, like they are still supposed to fund the government at some point. So those right. budget negotiations are going on. Um, but yeah, that'll, I think that'll be, there's going to, you know, a big kind of voting crescendo where Democrats feel like they have done everything that they can both to do it and both to show constituents and stakeholders like, you know, you said Biden wasn't involved enough. He did this big speech. He came to the Hill. You know, we tried to find a rules change that would appeal specifically to these people. Schumer has even said, you know, this these filibuster reforms would only be applicable to these two bills in an attempt to win over Manchin and Cinema. You know, so I think they're trying to just do out in the open everything they can, place the blame on Manchin and Cinema, and then kind of disperse and let the reverberations come out from that and then figure out what the game plan is going to be going forward. Now, let's let's talk about this primarying thing because you know that's been talked about, threatened, and 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 as you said, there's very different calculus for uh, Mansion and Cinema. We know that that uh, West Virginia is an overwhelmingly pro-Trump state, so kind of like you know, you're not gonna a you're not gonna hurt him in a in a primary, and if you do, you're not you're just gonna get a Republican. So that's once. And the other thing is that Joe Manchin's like in his mid seventies, so does mm-hmm. he even want to run again? Right, he's been doing this his whole, you know, doing this his whole life. Not in the Senate, but you know, an elected office. Uh, Kirsten Cinema is in her early forties, I think, maybe mid forties, and is in her first term. So very different calculus, very different right. state. Is there anything? Is there anything more concrete than these sort of vague statements from senators on this front? Well, in the House, you've got uh, Ruben. Shoot, what's his last yeah, name? Yeah, Ruben Gallego. Ruben Gallego, kind of becoming more and more explicit about his intent to primary cinema. It's kind of like her her statements and her speeches are almost like this little state of the union and then he delivers the rebuttal basically. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um so, you know, you've got that dynamic playing out. I think the other piece is you had Mark Kelly come out with a statement yesterday basically explaining why he's for the rules change for voting rights. So the other thing with cinema is just you really do have a one-on-one comparison showing how like a normal senator from Arizona would act and then how she acts. Whereas with Manchin, obviously the other uh, West Virginia senator, Shelley Moore Capito, is a Republican. So it, it's just different. Um, but, you know, she's they're also she's not up till 2024. So there is definitely, I think, some time to to see whether that be, you know, Ruben or anyone else who kind of emerges as the big front runner. But I, I would just, I would be shocked at this point if she doesn't have a very, very serious competitive primary challenge. Yeah, there's, the, I think the only, I mean, the thing with Gallego and just for, for listeners, he is, I don't know exactly how many, you know, he, how many uh, terms he's been in office, but he's been in the House for, you know, at least maybe three or four terms. I don't know exactly. You know, he's a young guy, right? Uh, Iraq War vet, relatively new, but been there for at least a few cycles. The key there is you can say like, oh yeah, he should primary her, but you primary someone and you basically have to give up your House seat, right? You can, in theory, you can kind of, but not really. It depends on the laws in different states. But so the point is, is does he really want to give up his safe House seat? 
I mean, that's that's a that's a big thing because, like, you know, maybe you lose the primary, maybe you lose the Senate thing. Right. Um, I mean, it's sort of a question to me whether he will, whether she will draw someone who is really a player in Arizona politics and really is a possible next senator, or someone who is more a just a vehicle to drive her from office. And I don't have much question; she'll at least get that second thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at this point, you know, kind of people. The standard thing with primaries is, well, you know, do you care so much about purity that you're going to lose the, you know, lose the seat? I don't think she can be elected again. She's so deeply unpopular among Democrats. And, and you know, Democrats are a minority of voters in the state anyway. You have to have, a, any Democrat in Arizona statewide has to have basically unanimous support from Democrats and some crossover Republicans. You can't be down at like 40% support among Democrats and have any chance in hell. It, it almost, it's sort of, it, it's sort of beside the point whether she wins the primary. I don't think she can win a general. I just don't. I just don't think it's possible for her. It really does seem like she's doing this weird calculus of like, well, I'll make up for all the Democrats I lose in, in crossover Republicans. And it's just like, what are you talking about, man? Like they might like you in the context of you're making life hard for Democrats, but that doesn't mean they're going to vote for you instead of the person with the R next to their name. Yeah, it's 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 silly. And she is uh, she's a very cocooned egomaniac. And that is really, you know, it's it's I'm not Joe Manchin is kind of he is what he is. He knows what he's doing. He knows the politics of his state. He's decided this is what he wants to do for various different kind of reasons. What is what is so annoying and frustrating about Kirsten Cinema is that at a basic level, I think that she thinks that politically, electorally, this is working for her, and it's not. It's totally not. And that's just because of her myopia. And you know, I take a little solace from the fact that her political career is basically over, but not much solace, right? I mean, like, you know, not that that accomplishes much for for things that matter. Anyway, let's move on to our question so we can mm-hmm. get you uh, some some a little R and R to rest up since you're uh, within your convalescing while also covering uh, the <laughs> hill for us. So, what's our question? Okay, so our question is from Eric, who asks, "Why has so much energy been directed towards a filibuster carve out on voting rights and not the overall reform slash return to the talking filibuster of the Mister Smith goes to Washington? Seems like it'd be easier to get." Get Manchin and Cinema on board with a return to how things used to be rather than a carve out they've said all year they wouldn't support. Uh, he asks, hasn't Manchin said he's open to the talking filibuster? Are they just being totally disingenuous? And I think this is how they've been trying to frame the carve out. Um, you hear the phrase restoration of the Senate like 8 million times a day. And I think that's why the inclusion of the talking filibuster in this reform that seems to be the one they're going to vote on to you know bring it back to a hall of debate, you know, all that kind of stuff that would maybe appeal to them if they really are the institutionalists they're at least acting like. But then it's, you know, I mean, I guess they... Maybe they could pass a reform that's a talking filibuster with still the supermajority threshold, but it's just not super clear to me that that would change things a whole lot. I guess there's an argument to be made that people would have to kind of stand up and and, and speak 
on their opposition, even though I'm not completely sure that doesn't just introduce a world where we have Ted Cruz on the Senate floor every hour reading green eggs and ham or whatever. But, you know, the what they're trying to pass is this talking filibuster with the lowered threshold. So we're bringing back the debate. Everyone has to engage, blah, blah, blah. Washington is back to its wonderful days of yore. But then there's actually also a chance for it to pass. I think just having a talking filibuster plus a 60 vote threshold means you're going to have the people who like to hear themselves talk, talk for a while and then come up against that same wall that we've had with every vote. Yeah. And I, and I think the, the, the answer is, is that is that Democrats have auditioned every conceivable way of loosening the hold of the filibuster. There are various kinds of ways you can do talking filibuster where you at least have to do something, you know, something that is kind of time limited, de facto time limited. There are reforms that maybe it's not that you have to get 60 votes. It's that the minority has to have 40 votes to block. Like, so you actually have to get 40 votes on the table at any given moment. So th- there's that, there's these carve outs. And I think the answer is, Democrats have given these two every conceivable path. You know, it's sort of like one of those big diner menus, right? (laughs) You go to the diner and you're like, how do they have all this stuff on the menu? How is all this stuff in the refrigerator at the diner? Everything is an option. They've given them every option and it's no to everything. And for what it's worth, and it isn't much, I don't even really like the carve out idea. Yes, voting rights are really important. But is fiscal policy not important? Everything's, I mean, kind of everything's important. And if we could do it with a carve out, great. But I think the answer is they have, they have offered them every conceivable path to even a little loosening of the filibuster. And the answer has always been no. And, and, and so we see that what they really want is a 60 volt threshold regardless. That's what they want. And that's just, so it's not a matter of like, they could have come at it some different way. This is, this is just what they want. Yep. So we'll probably see the conclusion of this effort, you know, by week's end. Yeah, no, I, you know, there is, uh, you know, it is what it is. And what also is what it is, is that. Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is sponsored by Josh Marshall <laughs> what Podcast. What a segue. Hey, hey. I, this, you know, there's a reason I get paid the big bucks. Uh, you can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, everybody send uh, thoughts of healing and wellness to Kate <laughs> as she as she convalesces and, and, and recovers from COVID. And we will we'll talk to you next week. All right. See you next week, folks. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 